You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. I'm Ankit Panda from New York. And this is Prashant Parmas. We're in from Washington, D.C. Uh, and today we're going to turn our focus to uh, China's uh, big initiative that's going to get a lot of headlines next week, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative or the One Belt, One and Road. So China's holding this Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation uh, next week from May 14th to 15th. That's expected to see uh, 28 world leaders uh, attend uh, and a whole host of other uh, delegations from around 110 countries or so. Um, and before we sort of start going to this podcast, I should mention um, our editor-in-chief, Shen Tiezi, has done a really good graphic uh, showing who actually is attending uh, the One Belt, One Road conference next week um, and what the level of representation is for various countries. But uh, what you're gonna, you and I are going to talk about today, Ankit, is um, sort of you know, where this initiative stands, what, what its rationale is, and, uh, and sort of what are the, some of the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. Both of us have written about this ahead of the conference, and I suspect we'll, we'll do so afterwards as well. Um, but I guess just to sort of get us uh, starting a little bit, um, can you give our listeners uh, sort of an overview of where the initiative stands as of today? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Um... Look, so this is one of the interesting things about this One Belt, One Road initiative. It gets talked about all over the place. It's written about in any deal pretty much China does with another country. If you read a news article, it will likely mention the initiative, right, which is a central part of China's grand strategy, essentially, under Xi Jinping. It was first announced in late 2013. It was a pretty low-key announcement. Nobody really remembers these speeches that she gave. He gave one speech in Kazakhstan, introducing the Silk Road Economic Belt, the land-based leg of this. And then just a few months later, or maybe just a month later, he gave one in Indonesia, introducing the maritime leg. Um, And, you know, at the time it was kind of, uh, well, all right, so he made these announcements, um, whatever, isn't really a big deal. But now, you know, here we are in 2017, China's holding this massive summit. Um, There's really an incredible media push abroad. Uh, It's uh, unlike anything I've really seen. I mean, um, even last year with the G20 meeting in Hangzhou, it wasn't quite this um, overbearing. Uh, You know, there have been all these weird propaganda videos that people have been passing around on social media, (laughs) the bedtime stories, as I'm sure uh, some of our listeners may have noticed. Um, But really, this is a big deal for China. So, you know, what is One Belt, One Road? Um, One of the critiques, again, you'd hear early on is that China's never really told us in kind of clear, succinct language what this initiative is, right? So very broadly, it's about infrastructure and connectivity. And if you want to get a little bit more jargony, I guess, with the economics, it's about reducing transaction costs for doing business across the Eurasian landmass. Um, And the Maritime Silk Road really also brings in the uh, maritime countries of Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean region into this initiative as well. Uh, So the whole idea is, um, you know, China's uh, seen 800 percent GDP growth from 2000 to 2014. And essentially by taking as, you know, Beijing is looking to adjust its economic model domestically to one that's more consumption driven rather than investment driven. uh, One Belt, One Road essentially takes some of the capacity that's been built up over the years, these bloated Chinese state owned enterprises that have massive staffs, massive capacity and directs them outward. Um, And there's multiple readings of why China is doing this, right? Um, One of it, um, you know, one of the readings is that this is about um, 
you know, turning a profit abroad. This is a clearly a business-oriented initiative for China abroad, and in the process, Beijing is looking to gain geopolitical heft. Some other readings, you know, will romanticize things a bit, uh, talk about China trying to restore itself as the Middle Kingdom in some ways, uh, trying to build up a modern model of the uh, old, uh, you know, the tributary state system with uh, indebting. Um, multiple countries around the region. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, very broadly, the kind of infrastructure projects, they range from transportation projects, telecommunications projects, energy projects, um, even even financial and political coordination. Uh, it's it's really a, a diverse range of things. And, you know, geographically, um, we're really talking about uh, everything from, you know, the United Kingdom to Australia to Sri Lanka to uh, South Korea to the eastern coast of Africa, um, and even even uh, South American states will be participating in this uh, upcoming summit. So really, it's a it's a global initiative in some ways from China's perspective, but it really focuses around what China has described as creating a community of common destiny in Asia. So it kind of relates to the idea of Asia for Asians that we've talked about before. Um, but I'll stop there. I mean, it's a uh, it's still a pretty ill-defined um, project overall. And one of the things I'm hoping for personally out of this summit is that China finally begins to come clean a bit about what One Belt, One Road actually is for in the end, and hopefully tells us how it's going to evaluate its success or failure in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, the point about the initiative being ill-defined is something that um, it's not just us analysts. I think a lot of countries and policymakers are still a little bit puzzled as to where this initiative is heading. I mean, there's questions about Chinese intentions, there's also questions about uh, the initiative itself. I mean, um, you know, you mentioned um, that ahead of the summit, there's been all the sort of a lot of high-profile attention uh, and media attention from the Chinese side on advertising the initiative. Um, but we still don't have, you know, objective indicators and metrics in terms of assessing uh, basic things. Like, for example, China claims that the One Belt One Road countries are are you know being a significant source, um, if not dominant source, of investment from China by Chinese companies. Um, but the way that they define it and they quantitatively measure it is sort of things like, well, we have invested this much uh, in these countries and we've produced this many jobs. But actually, those a lot of those investments were made even before the One Road One Belt One Road initiative was even promulgated in the first place. So it's very hard to attribute that to the initiative. Um, right. And a lot of the, the the rhetoric doesn't account for some of the costs um, so, and some of the problems of the projects that, you know, that China has been facing already. So it, it's tough to assess it. Um, but also, I do think that a lot of this gets to it, it's quite challenging for China to define the initiative, um, because I think they started out uh, very almost heavy handedly defining it as you know, a very key Chinese priority. And they got a lot of pushback from regional countries saying, hey, you need to make this inclusive. You need to make this open. You need to make, make it seem like this is not just all about China imposing its worldview, but that you want to get feedback from other countries. But then now when China is trying to be more open and more inclusive in terms of getting the feedback, um, there's the other side of the problem, which is that when you open it up to all these countries, you're obviously going to get some countries that are more enthusiastic than others. And sometimes the more enthusiastic countries happen to be the countries where the projects aren't being invested by anybody else because, you know, for good reason, because they're overly risky. And then you have these big Chinese consortiums going in um, and they face a lot of challenges, understandably, because there's a reason why these projects were not invested uh, in the first place. So I think China's facing a little bit of a challenge. And also, I mean, like you, you pointed this out very clearly um, early on, too, 
which is that it's impossible to have a one belt, one road discussion without talking about how China behaves in the world more generally. And you have heavy handed Chinese behavior in the South China Sea. You have China, uh, you know, sort of increasing it, uh, the rhetoric that it has uh, with respect to how other countries like Singapore and Malaysia and other countries are aligning with respect to the United States. Um, it's very difficult to view the One Belt, One Road as, you know, sort of an all positive, you know, re really sort of um, good initiative separate from how China has its ambitions globally. Right. So it really is uh, kind of a complicated uh, problem for China. But um, I wanted to also ask you, I mean, going into the initiative, I mean, you mentioned and you wrote this in, in your piece as well. And you mentioned the South China, uh, South China Morning Post. Um, you mentioned that it'd be good for China to come clean on its initiative, and, and, and I think some of the specifics um, that are required, one of the aspects of that is clarifying what China's intentions are. Um, and we've talked about this before with respect to some, uh, some folks thinking that this is part of Chinese hegemony, right, or, or Chinese domination with respect to the United States. And, you know, given where the United States stands with respect to the Trump administration and, and TPP, can you sort of contextualize that a little bit and how China might address that, those concerns? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great question. And I think it's uh, it's certainly appropriate for our podcast on geopolitics, right? There is this really kind of heavy geopolitical subtext that I don't think, you know, us it's only us analysts who are based in the West that overly focus on this. I mean, like you said, it's uh, even the countries that are participating recognize that there is geopolitical subtext to China. I mean, this isn't like a sovereign wealth fund or a hedge fund just going abroad looking in search of investments that will help it turn a profit because a lot of these cases, as you said, do have rather unfavorable risk profiles and China's likely to, to take a loss in the end. So, you know, this is how I kind of understand this story with One Belt, One Road, right? So I talked about the speeches that she made in 2013, and he's clearly personally interested in this mythology of the Silk Road and uh, centralizing China. But I think the geopolitical trends are actually uh, have been, you know, coming on for a while in, in Chinese strategic thought, right? You can go all the way back to, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping about biding your time and uh, hiding your capabilities. Uh, ultimately, that changes into China's going out policy in the early 2000s. Uh, from the transition from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, China starts economically engaging the world more as its breakneck growth uh, really begins to take uh, take off. And then finally, you know, in 2008, you have the financial crisis, legitimacy crisis for the Western-led economic order in some ways. And then, you know, we come to the pivot to Asia being announced effectively in 2011. And what's interesting is that in those few years, you know, 2011 to 2013, you actually see some interesting developments in uh, Chinese strategic thinking, right? Uh, so Wang Jisoo, uh, one of the preeminent Chinese uh, international relations scholars, uh, popularized this concept uh, known as March West, which I wrote about at The Diplomat like back when I started in 2013. It was a, it was a fascinating concept in that you know it recognized China's uh, age-old geopolitical challenge with the United States and maritime Asia, which is that you have this first island chain of countries that are essentially U.S. allies, Philippines, uh, you have you know, Taiwan, the Ryukyu chain, Japan, um, and, you know, China's old Malacca challenge that analysts have talked about for ages. You know, Beijing is very reliant right. on kind of fuel exports coming through the Strait of Hormuz, entering Malacca, going through the South China Sea. Uh, so what Vong was essentially proposing was that, you know, while the Eurasian landmass is massive, right, uh, China doesn't have to look necessarily to the water. There are all these states, uh, the Central Asian states, Mongolia, Russia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, to its west, where uh, there's just so much room for um 
for possible growth. So I think that is kind of the seed that led to this broader Silk Road initiative. Um, and there's actually a very interesting paper that I read recently. Uh, I think the latest issue of the Washington Quarterly by uh, Nadege Roland of um, the National Bureau of Asian Research, where she actually makes the argument that uh, one of the, you know part of the geopolitical impetus for Obor was uh, for China to undertake these risky projects with many of these Central Asian governments, um, even Afghanistan, Pakistan, and essentially you know stabilize those governments, lead to a situation where um, you know, something like the Arab Spring won't come to the countries on China's western flank, you know, strengthening their hand and in the process also helping integrate and stabilize Xinjiang, which is, uh, you know, China obviously worries about, you know, so-called splittist elements in the area, uh, Uyghur militant groups. Uh, so all of this, you know, there is like this real geopolitical logic, I think, that's been underlying this project for a while. Um, but now, I mean, we're at this point where Obor has, I mean, clearly outgrown that, right? It's no longer just a project focused on the Eurasian heartland. It's expanded to, uh, you know, the deep Indian Ocean, Europe, Africa. It's really gone global in some ways. Um, so I think, uh, you know, looking forward to um, how Beijing chooses to identify its intentions will be critical. And one of the things that you see in the messaging that leading up to this Belt and Road Forum has been, you know, this language of altruism, that this is China's gift to the world. It's essentially a dividend that China is paying out to the rest of the world uh, for essentially accommodating its growth. Um, and, you know, that's obviously a very self-serving form of narrative, I think, in some ways. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, Beijing is probably going to take a loss in a lot of these uh, in a lot of these places. Um, but, you know, Prashant, I guess uh, one of the areas that I think would be interesting to talk about is the skeptics of Obor, right? Um, so, you know, we're, yeah. we're recording this podcast from the United States. As far as I know, the U.S. is not sending a delegation to this summit. I, I asked the Commerce Department, State Department. It uh, doesn't seem like anybody's going. Um, and, you know, we also have India. Uh, we have Japan, which is uh, sending some sort of participation. We're not exactly clear what. Um, and even Australia, to an extent, though Australia's relationship with China has obviously been changing in recent years. Um, and I wonder, you know, um, do we really see these, um, you know, Obor skeptics uh, eventually coming around? I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, I even know that some of the Southeast, uh, Southeast Asian countries that you watch closely aren't um, entirely also um, fully enthusiastic about this. So uh, what's your broader take? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a good question. I, I think the question about the United States, in particular, um, you know, is an interesting one. Um, you know, that in in Washington, there is all these think tank events, and um, you you'll have uh, often the the Chinese observers asking U.S. experts, "Hey, why why doesn't the United States uh, try to actually contribute uh, to the One Belt One Road in some way, um, rather than you know consistently criticize it from the sidelines? You know, what what are the reasons for the United States not to be involved in it?" Um, and you get a mixture of responses from the U.S. government. I mean, one is that, you know, on the infrastructure component, at least, the United States doesn't do infrastructure, right? That the, United, the U.S. government doesn't act like the Chinese government in terms of doing that. They leave it mostly to the private sector, which remains uh, much more separate from the U.S. government than, is, than it is in the Chinese case. But I think, you know, these uh, rationales aside, I mean, I think there is a lot of suspicion still in the United States about what the Chinese are trying to do. And there was also uh, a sense that um, Obor may not actually succeed that dramatically, that um, there might actually be these deficiencies that ultimately lead to the downfall of the initiative. I mean, it may not necessarily be an abject failure because, um, as you pointed out, and we, we've both written about this before, too, there's significant infrastructure needs in the region. Uh, which is why you're seeing the demand signal come from these countries. I mean, the ADB recently revised its estimate upwards. You know, it's now $1.7 trillion a year of infrastructure that's required in the region. So there are going to be countries that, that want this. 
Um, but I think the key for the United States is to figure out, I mean, does it want to sort of attach itself to something that remains still remains pretty incohate in terms of not just the standards questions, not just the funding, but also um, real negative perceptions in some of these countries with projects gone sour. Mm -hmm. um, is this the right time for the United States to do that? Or should it shape it in other ways and try to push for other U.S.-backed initiatives and support other regional players that are trying to fill the same void, right? Like Japan has come up with its own infrastructure initiative, focus on quality infrastructure. So there, there may be other ways for the United States to influence this uh, rather than uh, being involved more directly in the, in the initiative itself. Of course, uh, this then raises the question of the response of the United States with respect to the AIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, where the United States not only didn't was was passive and didn't participate, but you know fiercely opposed other countries from getting involved. Um, but now the IIB, which um, a lot of people were skeptical about that it would even uh, come into fruition and it would take off, it hasn't quite taken off. Um, I would say it's still pretty slow in terms of a start. But that being said, I mean we're seeing a lot of cooperation between the IIB, the the World Bank, you know the IMF. Mm -hmm. ADB and these other institutions and trying to shape the standards and transparency questions and you know progress hasn't been that significant so far but I would say you know I, I'm a little bit more optimistic than I was when this initiative started so um, there really is a little bit of hedging from both sides um, from both the, the sort of proponents and also the opponents with respect to how they want to change the perceptions and I think that's very much going to determine on uh, where these big projects go. I mean, if a number of these big projects and corridors uh, take off in the coming years, China may be able to point that uh, in a direction of momentum that can then get other countries come in. I think one of the big things that the Chinese have been keen to advertise is the fact that they've now got New Zealand, you know, uh, because New Zealand is a developed uh, country, it's, it's a Western country, and, and those countries haven't really been signing up to the One Belt, One Road, right, so far. Right. I'm glad you brought up the AIB because that's actually, uh, you know, one of the areas, one of the OBOR related institutions that I'm actually quite positive about. I mean, you know, uh, there was this concern in the U.S. that AIIB would kind of entirely eschew standards. And there was even the geopolitical concern that it would just turn into another vehicle for China to essentially use capital from other countries. You know, I mean, like Germany, India or a major uh, Russia or major shareholders in the AIB would essentially use capital from these countries with its controlling voting share to essentially drive projects that would benefit China's geopolitical interests. Right. We haven't really seen that happen. I mean, AIIB, it's it, the projects that it's initiated in its first kind of uh, year and a half or so have been fairly modest. It's effectively still in stealth mode, uh, right? I mean, it's been mostly collaborating with the ADB, the World Bank, the British mm -hmm. uh, Development Agency in its initial projects. It just actually made its first investment in India just a few weeks ago. Um, but it hasn't really turned into that kind of, you know, machine for China to kind of um, pursue its geopolitical interests. And, you know, I think that also gets at the other aspect of OBOR. I mean, OBOR is, um, OBOR is Chinese grand strategy at this point, right? It's not just about geopolitics. It's not just about turning a profit, but it's also about, you know, it's also about the world order and China's place in that order. And it's also about, you know, soft power, making China a more attractive name across the world. It, uh, I, th I think, you know, you note correctly that that's not going to work in a lot of these cases because there are these tensions that China discovers when it decides to go abroad, right? Like with the China-Pakistan economic corridor, it's now kind of found its navigating the intricacies of the Kashmir dispute and you know good luck to China navigating that um, but also in uh, Myanmar you know they're um, after the Mahitsone Dam project has been kind of set aside um, now the uh, Chinese consortium leading the investment there is 
looking to readjust its equity share. So it's going from 50-50 to kind of, uh, I think the Chinese are pushing for 85-15, which is uh, significantly, uh, you know, out of line with what the Burmese want. And, you know, it kind of goes against the whole win-win idea to begin with. Uh, but anyways, you know, I mean, going back to the issue of the international order, I mean, you know, you raised the question of the Trump administration, which I think, you know, the Chinese didn't expect. But now I think it's given the Obor project um, all the more momentum in a way, right? I mean, there was the perennial question of, Will the world order accommodate China or will China seek to replace the institutions that the United States set up after the Second World War? And I think Beijing has shown that um, it intends to accommodate itself in the world order, but regionally in the Asia Pacific, it is looking to set up its own architecture, right? I mean, we talked about this uh, white paper that we saw come out of the foreign ministry earlier this year in China. I mean, uh, you know, Beijing is clearly uh, trying to set up this Asia for Asian shop. And I think the One Belt, One Road initiative is uh, is absolutely central to that, right? I mean, even the People's Liberation Army, we've seen rare, but, um, you know, there have been kind of comments on the record from PLA officials saying that, you know, even their mission, even the Navy's mission relates to, uh, you know, securing the global commons for the benefit of the One Belt, One Road initiative. So clearly, I think China is trying to position itself as a uh, as the node of a new regional security architecture in some ways. And uh, a lot of that will come through One Belt, One Road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, if the Chinese were arguing that um, they're fulfilling a need uh, that is clearly there uh, in terms of infrastructure and investment for some of these countries, and it's it's filling a void, um, the United States has made that even clearer and, and that void even bigger uh, with, you know, actions like um, the demise of TPP, at least for now. Um, and the fact that the United States with the demise of TPP doesn't really have a lot to point to in terms of an economic strategy or initiative. Now, you could argue the United States maybe doesn't need such a big initiative. It can do things bilaterally. Um, but the fact is, you know, these things like um, in Southeast Asia, for example, US ASEAN, the US ASEAN Connect initiative, um, talking about bilateral deals with a number of countries, um, these trade and investment framework talks that they have, um, th these don't amount to much, and actually some of these initiatives are actually, you know, they have the same fault as One Belt, One Road, one could argue, in the sense that they're actually taking things that have already been done and repackaging it as a coordination mechanism. Um, so I think, you know, as the United States thinks about Asia's strategy and, you know, Trump is going to be going to APEC um, and EAS, uh, now that, you know, he said at least that he will be going later this year, uh, I think the, the question will, will shift um, as we get to the summit next week, you know, what is the United States going to actually bring to the table when Trump goes? I mean, is there something that the United States can provide and look to? And that'll be interesting to see not only this year, but next year, because Singapore will be assuming the ASEAN chairmanship. And Singapore has already been indicating that it, it wants to go focus heavily on economics. I mean, a lot of these Southeast Asian countries, Asian countries in general, they like the fact that the One Belt, One Road initiative is filling this infrastructure void, but they also want to make sure that the United States and other countries are doing it too because they, they want more options to balance. Mm -hmm. um, so these countries, I think, will be looking to the United States and other countries to see what they can do to contribute um, as China builds at the One Belt, One Road initiative. So definitely something to, to watch uh, closely in that regard. Yeah, you know, I mean... As a closing note, I guess I would I would mention that what's really interesting about this initiative is that I don't think that there's really a direct comparison 
um, in kind of modern world history, right, to what China is trying to do here. I mean, the closest I could come to was something like the Marshall Plan, which is obviously very different. I mean, the Marshall Plan was a significant portion of U.S. GDP um, yep. when it was presented. It was um, obviously being kind of delivered to Europe, which is non-contiguous with the United States, separated by an ocean. China's, however, kind of taking this, you know, $4 trillion um, is, I think, the scope that most analysts use now for OBOR. Might be yep. bigger, might be smaller. We don't have exact numbers, which is, again, another problem. But look, like, I mean, China's radiating out this um, money, this capacity that it has from its incredible, you know, um, once once in world history, I mean, uh, uh, growth. I mean, you look at a country of 1.4 billion people growing at the rate that it did over the dec- uh, over a past decade and a half, and then kind of, you know, radiating that outwards. I mean, we really, you know, don't really have a comparison point. And I, and I think that's why this is actually one of the more fascinating things that's kind of taking place geopolitically in Asia now is, uh, you know, will Obor succeed? Will it fail? Well, you know, it, it all comes down to the measurement that you're using, right? Like China might end up eating significant losses in a lot of places, might even end up, um, you know, having local populations turn against China and even uh, perceive China as a as a new colonizer, as we are starting to read in reports from Africa. In uh, Sri Lanka, we saw spectacular protests against the Hamantota port, port project earlier this year. Um, but in the process, you know, China will... Um, have closer relationships with many governments where, uh, you know, those kind of public perceptions don't simply matter. So it is it is interesting in that sort of, you know, world historical perspective to see uh, what Beijing will do with Obor. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, with this summit, we'll hopefully uh, get more clarity, as I, as I said earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we'll uh, leave it there um, with the view that we will probably be doing several more of this as the initiative uh, plays itself out. Um, and so thank you for listening. And like I said, uh, do check out the uh, map that our editor-in-chief, uh, Shannon Tiazzi, uh, put together. It really is uh, pretty comprehensive with respect to uh, what, which countries will be attending and how the summit will actually uh, shape up. Um, so thank you to listeners, and uh, feel free to join us next time.